Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. I hope your weekend was great. I hope you had some nice time to relax. And now it's back to work and it's Monday and I love Mondays because uh, it gets us back into the rhythm of work and work is great and I love work and I hope you love work because how sad it would be if you didn't like work. God, God loves work and he gave us work as a gift and I hope that you see it that way. I hope whatever job you have, you can treat what you do as an act of worship to him and give him the glory. And uh, you can bring dignity to any job you do. So I was thinking about uh, my guest, uh, and I want to talk to him about work, because I think he's one of the hardest working guys I've ever heard about, read about. Um, I've met him a couple of times. He's a a retired United States Air Force Major General, and he used to also be the leader of uh, the Navigators. And so uh, he's got uh, authored several books, and he's, he's just been a prolific author, and, and uh, he co-authored a textbook on astrodynamics. I know I've lost most of you already just saying that, including me, because I don't know nothing about astrodynamics, but uh, we'll find out. We're going to talk about, uh, about uh, the importance of work and, and what we've got to focus on and, and how important it is that God gave us something to do, and we need to do it with a big smile. All right, we'll take a break, and then uh, Dr. Jerry White will be with me. You never know the impact your choice to listen to Faith Radio will have on someone, whether it's giving someone a ride, inviting them into your home, or even playing Faith Radio at your business. You help the relevant Bible preaching and family-focused teaching of Faith Radio reach far and wide. We recently heard an encouraging story from a listener about connecting with a fellow Faith Radio listener. I was in a gift shop looking for a quick gift, and this lady that worked in there was just kind of filling in. She's on the highway five days a week. I said, oh, you have Faith Radio on your radio. She said, oh, I couldn't live without Faith Radio. It keeps me calm. Uh, The only way she could handle that road rage five days a week was uh, listening every morning and every night going home from work. So I thought you'd enjoy hearing her testimony. Share your story with us by calling the toll-free Faith Line. Leave us a message anytime at 877-93-FAITH. That's 877-933-2484. Welcome back to the show. My guest, Jerry White, is a retired United States Air Force Major General. He outranks me by a long shot, and he's a former leader of the uh, Navigators, and it's always fun for me to talk to Jerry. Jerry, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Bill. Good to be here, especially since it's just two days following the Apollo 11 uh, 50th anniversary of the moon landing. Yeah, that was my first question, Jerry. I wanted to get your, uh, your thoughts on all that. Well, first of all, my entire Air Force career was involved with space, and I was a mission controller at Cape Canaveral, Cape Kennedy, uh, during the early days of the space program, during the early Mercury and beginning of Apollo. 
And um, I have many astronauts who are friends, one of with whom I do Bible study on a regular basis here. And um, I think it's a momentous time, and I'm really pleased that at a recent space conference that I attended, uh, in just in relation to my Air Force and space uh, involvement still, uh, where now the plans are to go back to the moon by 2024. So it was an exciting day to listen to a lot of the reports, to uh, listen to Michael Collins, Buzz Aldrin, uh, who were the two that were, are still living who made that shot, main moonshot. Mm-hmm. Jerry, I'm curious as to your um, response to this. What, what were the benefits to America with the landing on the moon 50 years ago? Well, the the entire space program has advanced microelectronics, uh, new materials, and many, many other things. Most of the things that we just take for granted today in the way we um, electronics and many of the materials like Teflon and and uh, other types of objects that are very lightweight, uh, those are all a result of the space program. The America decided to go a different route from the Soviet Union. The Soviet U- Union went big and heavy. We went small and miniaturized, and it led the way for us in what we call the miniaturization. The uh, watch that I'm wearing now bears as much computer as the entire uh, moon lander had on it, for instance. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we have benefited tremendously. And and also it was a um, looking forward with a a sense of pioneering, of adventure that it gave to the entire nation as we moved toward that goal. And, of course, underneath it all, was not just the space race, but a very, very clear and present danger of the Cold War and the development of our ballistic missile programs. So there was a a big uh, surge in interest in science and and technology in general, wasn't there? Oh, tremendously. STEM is what we call it, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And uh, that just drew so many people into both the education of it, but also in terms of employment. Um, And we kind of lost that. Fifteen years ago, a decision was made to discontinue our manned space program. So today, for instance, all of the people who go into space to the International Space Station have to go on a Russian rocket. And um, that's not the best way to go if we're going to continue being in this business. Mm Mm-hmm. Jerry, what information did we learn uh, in terms of the health uh, on astronauts going these distances into space? Well, there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of lessons. As you may recall, they were quarantined for thirty days when they came back and when underwent extensive testing. <clears throat> we found out first of all that man could live in the weightless environment. However, they had to exercise. They had to keep working. They had to have a special diet. They had to have special food. And uh, we found out that, first of all, there was not a tremendous mental impact, that is, psychologically. They stood it just just fine. But there was a tremendous physical cost in that their muscles uh, would atrophy, their bones would lose uh, mass, 
And so we learned a great deal about how to have man in space. And now we're keeping people out of the International Space Station for up to a year and uh, know how to treat them. Um, in the weightless and that rarefied environment, there are certain things that we can do testing on biologically that we couldn't do because of the the just the atmosphere and the pollution that we have. So there's a lot that we have gotten from it. We've learned so much, uh, most of which people don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jerry, what what if what did we learn from some of the moon rocks that got brought back? What, were there some was there some chemical data that was mind blowing? What what did we learn from some of those samples? To my knowledge, not a great deal different. Okay. We learned that they had most of the same elements that we have on Earth. After all, the likelihood is that the moon was cut out of the Earth in an earlier uh, collision that put it out there. So one would expect the elements to be essentially the same. So as far as the geology is concerned, we learned what we expected. That is pretty well the same. Um, We did not find water. There's still speculation that around the limb of the moon there might be something on the near uh, the near edge the far side by way of crystals and so forth but we haven't found that yet mm-hmm. and then did did uh, nasa uh develop or refine I, i'm going to be clumsy asking this question but did we improve rocket fuel oh without question in fact uh in the uh, second and third stages of the rocket launches, we, we, we've now developed a tremendously more efficient uh, fuel uh, and rockets to be able to go. What we did then was still pretty primitive in one sense. Um, big, huge boosters, the Saturn V and so forth, and, and now we've developed an upper stage, a Centaur, and some other stages that are far more efficient, we can go farther, we can last longer, because fuel, and to the two things that limited you up there were fuel to get back and the um, oxygen and the ability to have your healthy environment inside the space capsule. Mm-hmm. I know this seems like another kind of odd question, but I know you're pointed towards the moon, but is it's about a 250,000-mile trip, isn't it? Right. Okay. Now, <laughs> you have to have a pretty accurately guided missile system to get there, right? Oh, of course. That's where you get into my field. My specialty was astrodynamics, and it was actually doing the kinds of calculations that you have to make for that, that transfer out of the Earth's gravity. Actually, you don't go out of the Earth's gravity, but you move into a sphere where the moon's gravity becomes much greater and draws you in. And so it's it's just like anything. If you want to hit a moving train, you throw the rock a long way ahead of it. Mm-hmm. And as it flies, it intercepts it. So yes, you have a great deal of mathematics, a lot of navigational skills. And, you, and at that time, we did not have the GPS. We did other types of stellar navigation. It was just phenomenal what they did with so little. Uh, that is phenomenal. So when you're doing these mathematical calculations, uh, how do you know, where where are you getting your data to know that when you get uh, closer to the moon, the gravity is going to be different and all that? I'm Again, well, I'm asking another awkward question. Well, we the gravity of the moon, and we, we um, it's, it, su- 
surprisingly, it's not totally precise. That is, you have to make slight adjustments as you're going through the distance between the Earth and the moon. So you have a pretty general trajectory that you aim for, and when you leave the Earth's atmosphere, you shut the engines off and you're coasting. Wow. And until you intercept the orbit uh, around the moon, which you fire another rocket to slow you down to allow the moon's gravity to draw you in. But as you're approaching all that, you're making small corrections with small little rocket engines on the sides of your capsule. So, so interesting. And, you know, the other thing I, I was thinking about was the amazing technology that existed 50 years ago that when we saw the pictures on our little black and white televisions of Neil Armstrong, that that was being broadcast from the moon. That's right. No, and we would do, we do so much better now. We are, we are so much more capable. We are photography. Everything that we do by way of communications is so much more uh, robust and precise. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, this is all technical stuff, which is uh, always fun to talk about. <clears throat> but, a question you ought to ask, too, is, is there any spiritual significance to it? And my answer to that is not any more than one would find in any research. That is discovering God's creation. I think one of the most phenomenal things is that the laws of gravity and Newton's laws of motion have told us how God created gravity. He created the earth he created the moon and we are we just simply discover it and are able to take advantage of what is already there mm-hmm. jerry white is my guest we'll take a little break we'll come back uh, more with jerry in just a minute Psalm chapter 8, verse 3, it says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? Uh, My guest is uh, Jerry White. He's a United States Air Force Major General, retired, of course, but he also is a former leader of the uh, Navigators. And I'm sure that's a memory verse you have down in your uh, mind, don't you, Jerry? I do. Psalm 8.3. And I, I just think of so many verses that speak of God's creation and how he uh, made everything perfect. I love the phrase in Genesis, and he said, and it was good. Uh, but that leads to the other topic that uh, is pretty uh, in the frontal part of my mind, and that is the whole value, not just of doing science, but doing work, that God called man to work. That that is, and you you introduced it beautifully as you introduced the program at the beginning of this hour. Uh, Work is holy. Work is created by God. Uh, The vast majority, 99% of the world, goes to work every day in what we would call a secular job. And that is honored and, and, and valued by God. An interesting exercise is to look up in the concordance or online the word skill or skilled in the Old Testament. And God had skilled people. Like David in his leadership, he guided them with skillful hands. 
or the people who built the tabernacle and the temple. They were skilled in copper work and woodwork and in weaving. And you ask, how long did it take them to become skilled? Well, an apprenticeship of decades. And so God puts people into jobs to glorify him. And that's where our life and ministry is. And that was beautifully said, Jerry. But when we think of the fall, I think that's when we have problems with work because a lot of people get up every morning and they may not like the job they're going to. Yes, and you know it's interesting, uh, Bill, that many people get up and are just so grateful to have any kind of job. As I travel around the world, anybody who has any kind of job is very, very happy, even if it isn't the best one that they would have. Only in the West, in America and in the western part of the the world, do we have the option of, well, I don't like this job. I think I'll go do something else. Uh, most have to do what they were, what they had available. However, God even uses the most menial and the most uh, mundane of jobs, and people can find pleasure in it because there is where they relate to people. There is where they, they see God's handiwork. Yes, it might be boring. And uh, my father was a truck driver. And so I'm not I'm sure that that wasn't the most creative thing in the world, but he never complained once. Mm-hmm. Right, I put bread on the table, served me, served my family, and um, and it was his place for God. Well, that's beautiful. Uh, Jerry, now when you uh, uh, joined the Air Force, uh, did you think of that like when you were a kid, like one day I want to be in a fighter plane or what? What was your, your thoughts as a young kid? You know, as a young kid, I just wanted to graduate. I just wanted to get there and and learn something. Even when I went to university, um, I just wanted to finish and get on with life. (laughs) And uh, yes, because the draft was on when I was uh, coming into the military, I said, you know, this is a pretty good deal. This is exciting to fly, to work in space, to, to be involved. And so I really grew to love what I did. I must admit, at the beginning, it was hard. And I can't say I loved it at the beginning. I had to learn to do that. Mm-hmm. And then your service with the Navigators, that was, I'm sure, work that you just got up and loved every day, didn't you? Well, I loved every day, but, you know, being president of the Navigators for almost 19 years, about half of the job I loved and about half of it I tolerated. <laughs> I mean, yeah. The fact is, there's a lot of stuff we do in all of our work that is both mundane, it's problems, you have people issues, but I loved it because of the mission mm-hmm. to evangelize and to disciple people throughout the world. Um, high motivation, but I, I do want to say it was not a higher calling than my service in the Air Force. I think they were equivalent. It was a different calling. And so in the Air Force and in my space and engineering world, I had more opportunities to relate to non-believers than I ever did inside the Navigators, mm-hmm. like when you're in a leadership or management role. Yeah. Jerry, is uh, interest in the military down right now? Is enrollment down in, in the branches of the military? No. We okay. are um, we're, we're having a little recruiting problem. Let me tell you why. Only about... One about twenty pence percent, maybe twenty to twenty-five percent of the uh, 
U.S. population are eligible for the military service because of physical drugs, obesity, and many other things. Um, we have a shortage of pilots right now because there is a um, there's a dearth. We have a lot of people retiring, but we're still doing very very well on the recruiting end. And um, obviously, uh, the military has gotten much more competitive with industry. I think uh, we've, we're paying better. We're doing better by the people. We care for them. And uh, if you go on a military base today and see what is there, you'll see that we really care for our people. Mm-hmm. I'm looking over some of the awards that you enjoyed while you were in the military, and I would love to have you explain to me the Defense Superior Service Medal. What was that? <laughs> well, you know, uh, the awards that you get, it's the top, it's, it's one of the top awards. I got the Legion of Merit. Frankly, it's because I'd done certain things quite well, and, uh, and you're honored by them. I w- it's not like a combat medal, Bill. Mm-hmm. The people who get the Flying Cross and the, and the Purple Heart and those kinds of things, those are the real medals that count. Uh, the Defense Service Medal was a nice honor to get as a senior officer, um, uh, but it was more for a job well done than any some spectacular accomplishment. Well, to me, that is... We we reward people. We have a a way of saying, hey, you did a good job. In the Christian world, we don't do that too well. Yeah, we don't. But uh, as I just look at awards like that, and I think, well, this is a celebration of your commitment to excellence, which is, I think, part of what we are all called to do as believers, is do the very best at whatever job we have. Well, that's Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do... Do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. And when it comes to work, when I talk to young people today, I say what what you do in your work, you should be competent, excellent, and you ought to be faithful. Those three things are extremely important. And the most important is the faithfulness. Yeah, and then, uh, so competent, um, excellent, excellent, and faithful. And yeah, not everybody is omnicommitted. Not everybody is the best at everything, but everybody can be faithful to complete a job. And I've told people that work for me, I said, I will take the fact that you do what you say you will do. That is, I show up on time, I do my work well, I complete the projects I'm assigned. There may be others that are much smarter, but who don't complete the job. Yeah. Jerry, you are so much fun to talk to. Thank you so much for doing the show. I love it, and do it any time with you, Bill. All right, I've got that on uh, tape, so I can use that against you now. Well, you can. And by the <laughs> way, both the Navigators and the Lausanne movement in the workplace are very important things if you want to jot that down for something for the future. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jerry. Thank you, Bill. Yep. Jerry White's been my guest. We're going to take a little break, and then we'll be back uh, with an interview I enjoyed with Dr. Timothy Jay Keller. Be back in a minute.
Monday's going well. I sure appreciated talking to Jerry White. He has uh, got such a positive, robust perspective on getting up every day, serving the Lord, doing things with excellence. So I can only hope I would do as good a job as he does behind this microphone here for you. I had uh, uh, kind of a low-key weekend. I, I pulled some weeds out of my weed garden. There's really nothing in the garden but weeds. So I pulled some weeds out, and I can't even say it looked better because it's hard to say it's going to look better when there's only weeds in it. But then I was uh, coming across some really nice earthworms, and I thought, huh, I think there's, I could probably name three or four earthworms, three or four different kinds of worms, but God has created over one million kinds of worms. <laughs> Sounds like I made that up. You should Google it. Um, it's amazing to think that if you were creating the universe, like after a couple dozen worms, I would have stopped. That's enough worms. Two dozen, I'm done. But with God in his creative ability and his unlimited resources, he decided to create, I don't know, about a million. So I, I was fascinated thinking about his creative power and his unlimited resources. And then, of course, I think of Genesis one twenty four that says, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, that'd be the worms, and the wild animals, each according to its own kind. He can produce and supply anything. So I know when I take my prayer request to him, uh, I know that my prayer requests are being listened to someone with um, without boundaries. So he can be answering my prayer however he wants, and the way that he might be answering my prayer might be unthinkable to me. But that's okay. And it's almost preferable. I'd prefer he do the leading in my life because he controls the world. I control very little. So I'm not going to fight against that. I hope uh, if you have urgent prayers that you are praying today, I just ask and pray for you. I'm, I'm alongside with you. And just know that God is going to be uh, hearing your prayer and giving you the comfort um, and answering your prayer as he see fit, as he sees fit and he knows. All right, let's talk about the book of Jonah. Have you uh, studied that or you just think that's the story where the guy gets swallowed up by a big whale? And it's not even a whale, it's a big fish. Um, but it is a, a book that is so full. It's, uh, it's encouraging, it's convicting, it's got so much in it that when Dr. Tim Keller wrote a book about it, I was really, really interested. And he did an amazing job uh, talking about it. So um, I read it, I underlined it, and I took notes, and then I got a chance to talk to him. And I loved the interview so much, I thought, you know what I'd love to do? it's summertime, is uh, enjoy uh, that interview one more time. Um, and if you uh, know of the book, the book is called uh, The Prodigal Prophet, Jonah and the Mystery of God's Mercy. The Prodigal Prophet, Jonah and the Mystery of God's Mercy. So uh, what do you say? Uh, Dr. The Timothy Keller is my guest. Why don't we join that uh, interview already in progress. Dr. Tim Keller is my guest. He's written a book called The Prodigal Prophet, 
Jonah and the Mystery of God's Mercy. He's the former pastor, uh, um, founder of uh, Redeemer Church in New York. So he's with me today. Hello, Dr. Keller. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Thanks. <laughs> great to be with you. When I was reading your book, uh, The Prodigal Prophet, I was realizing that, boy, you really helped fill in a lot of dots on the story of Jonah. So I'd love to uh, talk to you about some of those. Um, first of all, I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't even registering that he was the, the first Hebrew prophet to leave Israel to go preach to a Gentile city. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, not that. I mean, there may be somebody else we don't know, but yeah. we don't know. And yeah. it, as far as the Bible's concerned, he's, he's the the only one actually until Jesus' time who was sent out. Uh, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Amos—they all speak to the pagan nations. They actually have oracles or messages, but there's no indication they actually left and went there to preach. So, I could we can kind of see why Jonah was so shocked <laughs> at the at the commission. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder why God would want to uh, warn Nineveh. I mean, the, the the capital of this Assyrian empire, I didn't know how cruel and vicious they were. Yes. Well, see, you're wondering the same thing. I, I We need to be a little more sympathetic to Jonah than we are. I think when you first hear the story, say, oh, my goodness, you know, he's disobeying God. Come on, you know, get it together. There. Oh, totally. But A, A, uh, they were very violent people. Very wicked people. Uh, B, no prophet had ever been sent out to go preach because the chances of getting killed on a, a mission like that were pretty high. And so when you uh, when you add it all up, it, it's not a big shock that uh, Jonah was shocked. In the end, of course, he shouldn't have disobeyed God, but we ought to be a little more sympathetic. Yeah, I mean, not to mention the threat of his death could have been uh, quick, uh, and th- this. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know how vicious they were. They're almost like ISIS, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, you have to be a little careful about uh, about uh, lining up contemporary things with ancient things. Oh, but, I... Yeah, they were they were like a terrorist nation. Yeah, basically, yeah. they were like a terrorist nation. Yeah. yeah. So Jonah is pegged to go and preach to really the very people he hated the most. That's right. Um, again. Uh, he might say, he might have said, why in the world? And, of course, at the end, he says that. He says uh, in J- Jonah chapter 4, he said, the reason I ran away was I was afraid you'd have mercy on these people, and I don't want them. I don't want them to be saved. I want them to be judged. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Tim, didn't didn't the prophet Nathan say that God would destroy Nineveh for its evil? So didn't that make sense to Jonah? Yeah. Like, what's the whole point of this? Yeah. Yeah, the prophet Nahum uh, actually... Uh, there, there's a little bit of debate because Nahum and Jonah were both uh, prophets around the same time. But uh, I looked at the scholarship and and I felt the arguments saying that Nahum had preached before Jonah were pretty strong, which means Jonah would have known that God had prophesied that he was going to destroy Nineveh. Uh, so why in the world should should Jonah go and, and, and talk to them? And, of course, the answer was that, that, that God was going to judge Assyria. But in the meantime, he actually did have some some reason why he wanted uh, Jonah to go, and he did do some good work in in that society. Uh, and, but Jonah thought he knew better. He thought, well, I I see what God said, and therefore there's something there's a contradiction here. It's like God is contradicting himself. Nahum said we're going to get judged. You're sending me off, and we're often like that. I'm afraid in our in our daily lives we say, what God's doing doesn't seem to make sense to me. Uh, now. Uh, and then we, we get very angry about it, exactly like Jonah. Yeah, so when uh, Jonah decides he's going to go to Tarshish and he 
uh, then goes into the bottom of the boat and falls asleep. Is there? Do you think there's a, a little bit of uh, feeling sorry for himself, low-level depression, I just yeah. want out of this? Uh, what is your, your take on that? Yeah, I mean, sleeping in a storm, it's not got to be that easy. <laughs> you, you know, the boat's rocking. Uh, this is not a big ocean liner, by the way. So right. It would have been – so how, he must have been exhausted. And you can speculate again, but uh, surely running away from God – Maybe guilt, maybe shame, maybe anger at God, maybe self-doubt. Am I doing the right thing? All those things means uh, uh, he was just just totally drained. And uh, so, again, I'm a little sympathetic, even though he's doing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. When I look at Mark chapter 4 and, thir- and verse 38, when Jesus uh, is asleep with his head on a pillow and there's a raging storm, and I, I thought of those two episodes, and I, I thought, you know— if, if I drift off to sleep on a plane and they hit a little turbulence, I'm wide awake all of a sudden. And I was always wondering how you could be sleeping during those periods of raging storm. Well, only if you have uh, been exhausted, only if you have done something that's very wearying. And, uh, of course, all travel in those days was a lot more arduous than it is now. Sure. But in, in Jonah's case, he was also uh, probably spiritually drained by what he was doing. He was a prophet. Mm-hmm. disobeying a direct order from God. Mm-hmm. Surely he didn't do that lightly. That would have been very difficult. It must have been all kinds of inner turmoil going on. Yeah. I loved him in your book, uh, The Prodigal Prophet, where you talk about how storms are always attached to sin. You know, if we violate our design, um, they strike back. Yes. Now, by the way, it, just to clarify, I said not all storms are caused by sin, but all sin causes storms. And what I meant is, yes. uh, there are, there's, a, there's a, you know, like, for example, in John chapter 9, so there's a place where the people say, look at this man born blind. Did he sin or his parents sin that he was born blind? And Jesus says, Not, neither, uh, but rather I, he was born blind so we could show the glory of God. I mean, in other words, the Bible does not say that if bad things happen to you, it's directly because you sin. But it does say if you sin, there are always natural consequences. That is, uh, and I get some examples in there. Yeah, the Bible says forgive. If you don't forgive, you're not just sinning against God, but you're actually creating all kinds of bitterness in yourself. You might actually have, uh, it, you may undermine your own health with your anger. So that's the idea behind saying there's always a storm attached to sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate you clarifying that. I, I hope I didn't get that wrong. But when we talk about no. running from God, uh, you've got in uh, chapter 10, which I think is so brilliantly laid out, how uh, we have a hard time trusting God because we don't really know if he's uh, out for our happiness. Um, right. Maybe you would talk about that um, because that was, uh, I think that chapter really resonated with me. I work a lot with uh, people in drug addiction, and they just don't think they can trust God to be ha- they, with their happiness. Right. Well, what I try to say is if you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, uh, how did the very first temptation work? So Satan comes in the form of a serpent, and uh, Adam and Eve say, well, you know, uh, we're not allowed to eat of this tree. And uh, the, the serpent basically says, oh, but if you if, if you eat of this tree, you have no idea how great that's going to be. And, you know, God's trying to hold you down, and and he's trying to, he's trying to hem you in, and you need to take matters into your own hands. So you might say the very first temptation was, if you trust God, you'll be miserable, and you really can't trust God to have your best interests in mind. 
that was the first temptation of the Satan. And it's almost like it's passed into our hearts. And it's it's in every single one of our hearts that we really think, we I mean, just really can't trust God. I think if you think about it, uh, it's incredibly arrogant uh, to think that we know better than God or to think that we know our needs better than God. But that's that's what sin is. So it's a it's it's a serious problem, and, and Jonah shows his mistrust. And the the only thing that I I think the only thing that heals my mistrust is seeing what Christ did on the cross for me. At that point, I'm saying if God would do that for me, then I can trust Him. I don't think there's anything else that can overwhelm that lie in my heart. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Dr. Timothy Keller. We'll take a very short break and come back in just a minute with more of Dr. Tim Keller. listening to Bill Arnold's Encore presentation, Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome back to the show. If you're like me, you are loving this. I've got Dr. Tim Keller on the studio line. So uh, welcome back. So Tim, I find your book, Tim, so incredibly relevant today with when we look at the people that we are viewing as uh, uh, our enemies or the people that are so different from us. And Jonah was really called to go love the enemies. And I think we've got more partisanship and separation, and we've got um, we we have more walls up than ever before, and we need to drop those, don't we? Yes, there's no doubt that that's one of the main. It's certainly not the only one, but one of the main uh, messages that ties the book together. If you think of it like this, in Jonah chapter one and two, Jonah runs away, and he does not want to tell the Ethereans the truth. So in the first half. Jonah refuses to tell him the truth. But in the second half, he goes and tells him the truth, but he doesn't do it in love. Because at the very end of the book, God is saying, Jonah, you went to the city, but you didn't love the city. You uh, you told him the truth, but you didn't do it in love. There's no compassion in you, Jonah. Mm-hmm. And, and if you think about it, if you tell somebody the truth without love, they're never going to believe that truth. They're just going to – they're going to sense that you're just trying to bring them down. The only way you ever get anybody to actually believe the truth is to speak the truth in love. And so if you don't speak the truth in love, you're not actually honoring the truth. You're really not doing uh, truth, the justice, the truth. And you're absolutely right. We live in such a time of polarization. It seems to me the, spe- the second half of the book of Jonah could not be more relevant. Yeah. Because it's just saying it's not enough to tell people the truth. You've got to love them. And actually, that's not what we're doing at all. Mm-hmm. There was a, a part of uh, your book that really hit home with me because it, and if I can just read this couple sentences that struck me, it said, when you look at people who have brought trouble into their lives by their own foolishness, we say things like, serves them right, or we, mock, or we mock them on social media. What kind of imbecile says something like this? And when we see people of other political party defeated, we gloat. It's not real compassion, is it? No. <laughs> uh, it, the Christians are, listen, Christians are supposed to have the gospel, which pulls them away from that. It does not mean you don't debate. It does not mean you don't tell people the truth. It does not mean you may not be active in a political party. But the gospel pulls you out of that self-righteousness, that that it should lift you out of that uh, willingness to demonize the other side and to say they're not just wrong, but they're inferior people because of that. Uh, Instead of saying, I'm a sinner too, I'm saved by grace, and show respect to the people who differ with you. And that we should be 
we should be salt and light in the con- in the uh, in the country right now. But you know, I I have to say we're not. I, I'm afraid increasingly we're we're pulled into the partisan uh, polarization, and rather than actually helping them, we're we're we're, we're I'm afraid of being affected by them. Mm-hmm. I know this gets to be uh, a little bit touchier, but you, you you talk about in your book it's really Im- impossible to transcend politics and just preach the gospel. And I think you made a reference about you know slavery in the eighteen fifties. I mean, you couldn't be apolitical, could you? No. See, if you're apolitical, you're actually voting for the status quo. So if you, even at the local level, if you never go to um, any kind of uh, community board meetings or neighborhood association meetings or uh, if you if you don't participate at all in politics, what you're really saying is the way it is is fine, and it's never fine. There's always something wrong, and so to 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 I try to say to to try to not be political is in and you end up being political. Uh, and so rather than that, if we're going to love our neighbor, we need to be, I think, politically involved. Mm-hmm. But and we have to be careful about being sucked into partisanship too far. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim, was was Jonah a little bit blind to God's grace? Uh, no, he was not a little bit <laughs> blind to God's grace. <laughs> he was a lot. Okay. Great. So, uh, <clears throat> you, I, thank you for that softball question. I, I appreciate uh, that, yeah. No, it, <laughs> in fact, here's the, the irony is he can't understand why in the world God would be merciful to these, these, these terrible people. So in chapter 4, He's actually standing in front of God saying, this is why I ran the first time away from everything. I mean, I ran away because I knew you might be merciful to these people, and they're terrible. How could you be merciful to those people? So he's standing there. He's a prophet of God. He's already run away, and now he's arguing with God. Why didn't God smite him in the first three verses of the book? Mm-hmm. And the, see, here he's saying, how in the world can you be merciful to these people? And yet here's, there is Jonah living only by God's mercy. I mean, Jonah is only alive because of God's mercy, and he's forgetting that. And therefore, if we speak the truth without love, it's got to be because at that moment we're forgetting that we live only by God's mercy. And that's the, I think that's one of the main points of the book. And it's also an ironic thing that here's Jonah arguing you shouldn't be being merciful to them. At that very moment, God's being merciful to him. So, Tim, when I read the book of Jonah and I, uh, I see that God sent um, a storm and then God sent a fish— uh, God's always been in control of all the circumstances in Jonah's life, hasn't he? That's right. Um, and of course, the lesson is that um, bad things and good things. I mean, he sends a plant, you know, at the end of the book, uh, when Jonah's out in the desert and this plant grows up and gives him shade, uh, he sends him a fish, uh, which of course is also a thing that actually saves his life. But he also sends a worm to eat the plant, and it it dies, and then the the sun beats down on Jonah. And so the the message is that everything that happens, good and bad, is part of God's will. He doesn't enjoy uh, making us unhappy, but he sometimes does things, allows things, in order to wake us up. Mm-hmm. So yes, he, he's in charge of everything. Mm-hmm. As I just want to go back to the uh, the sailors, um, they they were um, they were kind of upstaging Jonah a little bit. I mean, Jonah kind of came on and let him know with a little bit of swagger that you know who he was and and who he followed, and they were pagans. And then after the storm was calmed, uh, they were they were wanting to know more about God and repenting and 
I, I find that so fascinating that um, that when a storm comes into a person's life, it can get their attention really quickly. Yes, and of course, it, that's right. Uh, and the uh, sailors are, are very humble and respectful to Jonah, even when they find out that he's the cause of the storm. They don't just grab hold of him and throw him overboard. They say, what should we do? Um, they, they, they treat him with great respect. And when, <clears throat> when they see the storm go away, uh, when Jonah's thrown in, they, they, from what we can tell, they get really converted. Yeah. They use the word Yahweh. Mm-hmm. They, they offer sacrifices. They are truly converted. And uh, so one of the messages is sometimes the storms come into our life, and it's the only way God can get our attention. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, that's definitely one of the one of the lessons. And and you and I probably both know just from experience of people who have kind of ignored God for much of their life, and then when something came into their life that completely turned it upside down, they were wide open to hearing more about God. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's almost typical. Um, I would say at least more than half of people I know who have found Christ have said that they found Christ, which is the great treasure, but only because something wrong happened in their life, something bad happened. Mm-hmm. And Tim, just with a couple of minutes left, would you talk a little bit about uh, the the substitutionary sacrifice and the connection between uh, uh, Jonah and Jesus? Yes. Uh, I'm glad you asked about that. The 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 question is, how did Jesus' death save us? One of the things you see in Jonah is the storm comes, and when Jonah says, throw me in, so I will be enveloped by the storm, and you will not be. That is, I'll take what was, what's happening to you, and I'll take it on me. Now, I try to make the case that that's what happens on the cross, but to try to connect it to the way in which we live, I say, if you think about it, all transforming love it's like a substitutionary sacrifice. So I try to get some examples. Uh, my, uh, my youngest son and his wife, my youngest son's wife just had twins, and they're like three weeks old. Congratulations. And right now, yeah, it is wonderful. Yeah. But you know what it's like to have twins? I mean, <laughs> they're both infants. They both need to be fed. They don't get up at the same time at night, mm-hmm. and, and, my, and, and they're exhausted, and they owe, they're exhausted. <laughs> And they're sacrificing everything. They, mm-hmm. they don't go out. They can't do things. It's just the way it is. But if you don't do that, those children don't grow up and have a wonderful life. So uh, even parenting is a substitutionary sacrifice. You say, uh, unless I sacrifice, unless I lose something, you don't gain something. You don't, if I, unless I die to my, my schedule, unless I die to many of the things I'd like to do, you will not live. So I say all of us like that. But when it comes to Jesus, of course, it's the ultimate example of it. Mm-hmm. And the ultimate example of it is that uh, he he died and lost everything so that we might live. Mm-hmm. Tim, what would be one thing you would hope readers would take away from your book? Um, I certainly got a lot out of it, so thank you for writing it. And what are you hoping readers walk away with? Well, I, I listen, that's a great question. But I, I think I'm going to be a little, uh, I'm going to be a little, uh, I'm going to dodge it a little bit. Okay. Because I really believe that the book is so rich that the the message you come away with will depend a lot on you, where you are and who you are. Uh, it does talk about, uh, for example, really taking God's Word seriously mm-hmm. and not reading it selectively. It does talk about trusting God when you don't understand what He's doing. It does talk about not putting your politics over your faith. It does talk about speaking the truth in love. And see... I'm not sure which thing 
when you read the book of Jonah, it's going to be the main thing that hits you because it will depend on where you are. But that's because the Word of God is alive and active. It's not a dead book. It's a living power. And depending on where you are and who you are, God will say different things to you through it. And so I'm not sure. <laughs> I just gave you five or six things that might be taken. No, I love it. Depending on where you are, uh, you, you'll probably get a different thing out of it. Yeah, I love it. Um, so I appreciate, I know you've done a lot of interviews today, so I appreciate you uh, doing one with me. And uh, just always a pleasure to talk to you, and, and uh, God bless, and thank you again. Thank you. Yep. Thank you, Bill. And your questions are really great. I oh, appreciate thank, it. Thank you so much. Uh, my guest has been Dr. Tim Keller and his book, The Prodigal Prophet, Jonah and the Mystery of God's Mercy. That wraps up our show for the day. Thank you so much for listening and being with us today. Um, just I love you, and I, I love that you support and listen to Faith Radio. As you lay your head on the pillow tonight, just know that God's working out his great plan in your life. God bless. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.